Well, good morning. Uh, those of you who don't know me, I'm Zach Carden. I'm the director of Family Ministries here. Uh, if you are visiting with us, I do ask if you would do one thing. Take this card from the pew in front of you. Go ahead and fill that out. Uh, there is no offering bag to place that in, but if at the end of the service you'd like to come and place it up here on one of the, the front chairs, we'll take those up. Also, there is a place for prayer requests. Anybody here, if you have a prayer request, something on your heart, uh, those are prayed over every week. You can fill those out, and you can also bring those up. Lay those up on front, and I will make sure they get to the right place. This morning, we are going to be in Romans 2, 1 through 16. Romans 2, 1 through 16. And that's page 1748, 1748 in your pew Bibles. After coming off of a section where Paul lays bare the depravity of the human heart, he turns his sights on the fact that we as fallen people have a hard time seeing our own fallenness but that God is righteous judge and sees in ways we do not see. Romans 2, 1 through 16. You therefore have no excuse, you who, have, who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law and who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have a law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through, the, through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we know that your word is profitable. It goes out and it is profitable because it is your word. Help me this morning as I expound on your word. Whatever is true, take, make it cause, cause it to, to take root. If there's anything I say this morning that is misguided or misleading or, or because of my own fallenness, may it fall to the ground and not prosper. May only your truth be proclaimed and may only your truth grow and bear fruit. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
When I was in eighth grade, I got into my one and only fist fight. I went to a boys' school where the rapidly shifting hormones of adolescence would at times boil over and erupt into violence. I, however, like to think of myself as a fairly level-headed and peaceful guy. But it happened one day when I sat on the floor of the junior school building studying for a science quiz in the next period that in walked a child or a kid who was well known to be a little off. I spoke to him, and then he walked over and pinned my neck against the wall. And I could see that I was at a disadvantage, as they would say, I did not have the high ground. I saw his foot poised to kick me, so I placed mine in the way to block it. This he saw as an aggressive act. And I'm not sure if he kicked me or punched me first. All I remember is my head was swimming as I stood up and started throwing my gangly form in there with punches and kicks and more than a few slaps. A friend broke us up, and we disengaged. As he began to walk away, my, prized, my, my pride, as bruised as my nose, called him something. I don't remember what it was. I'm sure it wasn't appropriate for the sermon. <laughs> he returned, and we traded a few more blows. And then my friend broke us up again and told me to shut my mouth and keep it shut. The tale of this altercation moved swiftly through the lower school, and we were summoned into the principal's office. I wasn't immediately concerned about getting into trouble. After all, I was the victim, right? He walked over and brutally assaulted me, so I, I felt I had you know, a sense of justice within me. I, I was exonerated. But my hopes that this guy would receive quick justice began to melt as the principal interrogated both of us equally. Didn't he know that this guy was deranged, off, had a reputation for being a little off-kilter and a loose cannon? Well, he asked my foe his side of the story, and he told it, adding that I kicked him first. Well, he perceived my block to be a kick. I can say that now. Back then I said, he's a liar! Which didn't help my cause. Then the principal asked me my side. Something to him did not add up. And so he asked me point blank, what did you say to him before he walked over to you? Uh-oh. I explained to him I called him bird killer. What? Yeah, I explained he destroyed another kid's clay pigeon in art class, and everybody's telling me to call him bird killer. So you thought that was a good idea to join in? Uh, yeah, but I didn't know it set him off. So my principal then looked at me, and he asked me the question, what do you think your consequence should be? And I said, with a sense of self-righteousness, nothing. That was not the answer he was looking for. I could see very quickly it was not the answer he was looking for. Instead, he sentenced me to cleaning up the room with my foe for a whole week, in which we actually became friends during that time. I realized then what I realized, I didn't realize then what I realize now. My heart is filled with too much pride and flesh, too tainted by a willingness to let myself off the hook and to roast the other guy to truly act as an impartial judge. And when it comes to clay bird destroying middle schoolers, that's one thing. 
But when it comes to judging all humanity and their salvation, it's a different level altogether. That's Paul's point here. God is the only perfectly righteous, impartial judge. And the stakes are too high for us to misunderstand that. And while I believe this passage primarily, primarily targets those who find their hope in their own strong secular morals or crossless obedience, this has something to say to us as redeemed people as well, as people who understand that the righteous shall live by faith. Because the longer we hang around the kingdom with nice people in respectable life situations, our righteous indignation on God's behalf, which is good, can mutate into something more sinister. A sense of self-righteousness and self-righteous indignation. So there's two levels here as we look at this passage. There's one for those who don't know, yet know Christ, who sit in judgment of people who do wrong because they think that they're holy, they think that they're right in their own merit. And there's something for us as redeemed people to learn so that we don't slip back into a sense of self-righteousness. So Paul turns to the socially and religiously nice who have this sense of superiority as they look at his scathing rebuke of the depravity of man in chapter 1. And he says, like some sort of John Wayne-like marshal, not so fast, pilgrim. What? Horrible John Wayne, I'm sorry. But Paul reminds us of the central truth that God is the only one who can judge with righteous perfection. He's the only one without sin who has the right to judge. He's the only one who speaks absolute truth because he is absolute truth. And he's the only one who judges impartially. But in maintaining who God is as righteous judge, Paul, by inference here, sheds light on our misperceptions and misapplications of this truth. He shows us that we are unqualified to judge as God judges because first, we tend to overlook our complicity. As humans, we tend to overlook our complicity and as believers, sometimes we forget the depth of our complicity. I remember listening to a well-known Christian preacher on the radio when I was in college, and this guy was a Bible-believing, solid teacher of the Word of God. But one day, as he was giving his testimony, he said he was saved at the age of six or seven, I forget which, from sins like not cleaning his room. I bristled. And the reason I bristled is that's the symptom. He wasn't just saved from the symptom. He was saved from the disease. The disease is a much deeper problem. It's a dead heart. It's a heart that's not alive unto God. It's a heart of rebellion against God that all of us have. All of us are born into a heart of rebellion. Even as a six-year-old, we stand apart from Christ whether we are an adorable six-year-old or really nice people. We stand condemned when we stand apart from Christ. Just standing there breathing, we are objects of wrath. Why? Because apart from Christ, we are dead-hearted rebels who produce only death 
from our hearts. Now, it may be pretty-looking death. It might be nice death with a little bow on it, but it's still death. Nothing about it is pleasing to God. Those righteous acts are filthy rags before him. They do not assuage the wrath of God. We have to know and appreciate the depth of what we were saved from because that impacts our walk with Christ. How? Well, because if we don't see that no matter what we look like on the outside, that we were dead on the inside, that means that whether we were nice tax-paying citizens, like there were plenty of those in Rome, there are plenty of those in America, it doesn't amount to any merit before God. Zilch, zero. And if we think that we're better off before God saved us, or if we think that we were nice people and that, or that some, somehow God, we deserved God to save us, then the seeds of self-righteousness in us begin to germinate and grow. And though we may not say it aloud, we think, you know, I'm not like them. I'm not like these people in Romans 1. I, I, there's something about me that really deserved to be saved. And that's why in verses 1 through 3, Paul turns to both the good moral Jews and the citizens of Rome, and the, and the good citizens of Rome, and he sees the self-righteous smile curling across their face, and he says to them, you are complicit. And he reminds us that we too, before we came to Christ, were complicit in the same things that they're doing in Romans 1. And if we think that somehow, if we thought that somehow we were going to avoid God's righteous judgment because we were nice, we were completely missing the depth of our heart's rebellion. So we are disqualified from judging as God judges because of our complicity. And sometimes we forget the depth of our complicity and think and minimize, well, you know, I wasn't really such a bad person. Hard to see that when you're a six-year-old or seven-year-old. It's hard to see that when you've come to Christ after a decent life. And that can begin to taint the way that we see other people. But the second reason we see here why we are not to judge as God judges is that we tend to undervalue God's remedy. Look at verses 4 through 5. Paul says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's rather dramatic point here is that these people who want to bank on their niceness and self-righteousness are in contempt of heaven's court. As we look at the people who are moral, decent people and think they're moral, decent people apart from the cross of Christ, they are refusing the plea deal on the table. The only plea deal they're going to get, and that is Jesus and his righteousness offered to them. And they turn down that plea deal and say, no, I'm fine. I'll go before God with my righteousness. I'll go before God with my life because I didn't do anything that is deserving of his wrath. 
I remember being confronted in the mall by some people who were evangelizing at one time. It's back when I was in high school before I came to know the Lord. And they asked me for what reasons, you know, what, what merit do I have before God? I'm not, I'm not a bad guy. I've never killed anybody. And in my own estimation, I was fine before God. But I was in contempt of heaven's court because I was avoiding the plea deal. The only deal I had, which was in Christ's blood. And because they refused the court of heaven, he has declared them guilty. They refuse to see their complicity. They also refuse to see they need any remedy. They are in contempt of the court of heaven because they are refusing God's grace. They seek crossless redemption, and there's no redemption apart from the cross of Christ. So what does that have to do with us as redeemed people? Well, we know this already, don't we? But it's to always be before us. God's grace is to be treasured. Grace loses its value if we believe that there is something good in us that caused God to want to save us. It minimizes the fact that it's a gift. Or, or we're of the, of the opinion that Jesus got us to this point, and now we've got to maintain it, and that I've done a pretty good job maintaining my salvation before God. No. That is not what the Word of God teaches And it minimizes grace. It minimizes what has us standing here before God. It undercuts the cross. And it affects our judgment. How do I mean? If our mouth sings, if our mouth sings, "'Twas grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And yet my heart sings, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, but I got it from here.'" Our point is skewed. Our point of view is skewed. And that affects and infects how we approach people. Now, I want you to do one thing for me. Right now, in the quietness of your own thoughts, I want you to imagine the most unsavable person that you can think of. You don't have to close your eyes. But think of the most unsavable person on the planet, a person who's beyond God's ability to bring to their knees. Many of us will have a picture in our minds. But the truth is, our minds should be blank. Instead, we should be drawing a blank because many of us, though many of us see that there's someone in our minds that we think of, that we've we've said, this person is beyond the pale of God's redemption. The reality is, God has declared there's no one beyond the pale of his redemption. And it just shows the skewed nature of our heart that begins to qualify. This person is a decent person, and they'll probably listen to the message of salvation. This person is lost as last year's Easter egg. I am not talking to them. And you see how it skews our ability to reach out to people. In our minds, we are quietly judging, and we're saying, this person likely to come to Christ, this person not likely to come to Christ. And you even see this in the book of Acts. You see this in Ananias. Ananias, who is praying, and the, and the Lord comes to him and says to him, I want you to go pray for Saul. And Ananias, responding how many of us would, says this to the Lord. 
about this guy who's the poster child for the Jews of religious morality, but the absolute antithesis of that for Christians. He is the one that cannot be saved. In fact, he's the one who's taking the, taking the lives of Christians. And Ananias answers and he says, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, okay, I hear you, Jesus, but you've got to be mistaken. You must mean some other Saul. You can't possibly mean this guy. I mean, listen to what he's saying. He's not directly saying, no, I won't, and you're wrong, but he's intimating to the Lord, you're absolutely wrong. This is not the kind of guy that you save. This guy, this persecutor, is beyond the pale of redemption. Don't you see it? He doesn't deserve to be saved. He was standing holding the coats while people were stoning Stephen, and he was giving his approval. Lord, you're wrong. But the Lord makes it very clear to Ananias. The righteous judge tells him, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. Who have we seen in our lives that have they've come to know Christ that we would never have chosen? That by our estimation, even as redeemed people, we would have said, there's absolutely no way that guy will ever darken the door of a church. There's no way that woman who breathed out obscenities about the Lord would ever praise the Lord with that mouth. And yet, God continues to bring that kind of person to their knees. And we stand mouths open that God would even convert a heart like that. And the reason our mouth hangs open is that first, we have minimized our complicity. And second, we have minimized the grace of God. We've overlooked the remedy of God. We have said that somewhere in that equation that we had a better chance of getting into heaven or getting into grace or coming to Jesus than this person over here. But when Jesus walked the earth, he said the opposite was true. It's those people who were morally bankrupt, who saw their great need, who were willing to listen to Jesus and his plea that they come to the cross. But the people who thought that they were okay, those were the people that had a hard time seeing they need a physician. They need a doctor. Because they were just kind of sick. They had the sniffles. They weren't in dire need. They weren't terminal. They were just sort of sick. And that kind of thing can infect our heart and affect our eyes in the way that we see people. And the way we remedy that is to go back to the remedy of God, to come back to grace and to say, There but for the grace of God go I. I am here not because I'm a good guy or made some good choices, but because God came after me and he extracted me from wherever I was and brought me to himself and brought me to my knees 
He put me in my family. He put me in a church. He put me in this situation. He brought me to my knees. When we have that great appreciation, it changes our perspective. And it opens our eyes to see that that unsavable person in our mind, that should be blank. There should be a willingness in us to go to people who are unlovable, to people who are unsavable, and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it is the only hope they have. Even if they're decent moral decent moral people by secular standards, and there's plenty of those these days, they're going to be judged as unrighteous before God. Well, the third reason why we are not fit to judge as our perfect, impartial, righteous judge, the Lord, is that we tend to overvalue our self-effort. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Wait a minute, you might say. Okay, doesn't that mean that God's judgment is based on works and not grace? Isn't that just doublespeak? Not at all. In Deuteronomy 5.32, Moses tells the people, so be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you to do. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. If you draw a timeline of the history of, of Israel, of God's people, you will see that before the Babylonian captivity, the tendency of God's people was to veer to the left. They would be best described as Romans 1. They sought after the idols. They sought after the practices of the nations around them. They were depraved, immoral people. And God repeatedly said, you will be judged for this. You will be taken in captivity, and you will, be, you will learn in captivity to trust me. And into captivity they went because they refused to repent. So after the Babylonian captivity, after they were released, after they came back, they were going to make sure that they were never going to sin again. And so what rose from that is a veering to the right. And the Pharisees were known for what's called hedging the law. To the law of God, they added more law and more law and more law. So you won't actually come close to breaking it. We're going to add this law and this law and this law and this law. They erred to the right. Paul in Romans 1 and and these verses of Romans 2 has pointed out that this just isn't the story of God's people. This is the story of the human heart. This is what we do. We veer to the left. We veer to the right. We err to the left when we worship the created in licentiousness and sensuality. We veer to the right when we believe that the law can save us. It is a veering toward moralism. The law was meant to expose us and drive us to the Lord so that we can come to him and by his spirit walk by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Obedience flows from the depths of our gratitude for the mercies of God upon us. 
True obedience comes from hearts that are made alive by the Spirit. And when God judges us, what he's going to do on the last day is he's going to judge our hearts, whether they were dead or alive. And that's Paul's warning in verses 6 through 16, that he will judge our hearts and whether they were fully alive. Paul and James are in full agreement here. Faith without works is dead. It's a dead faith. But when we overlook our complicity and when we undervalue God's remedy, we tend to overvalue self-effort. Look at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Rooted in that word for self-seeking is the concept of self-promotion, of self-effort. And the fruit of self-effort is death. There is no righteousness that comes from self-effort. It is a rejection of truth, of what God says about us. And it's an embrace of evil, although it, it doesn't seem like it should be. Anything apart from the cross, anything apart from God's righteousness that he's given us in Christ is morally repugnant before the Lord. This was Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees when he called them whitewashed tombs. He said on the outside they looked pretty, but on, in, on the inside they were dead man's bones. It's like a freezer that, that has failed to work with meat inside of it, sit, sitting for months. And to make it look pretty, we paint it on the outside, but we've done nothing about the inside. That's what Jesus means. Hypocrisy is to whitewash the outside while the inside is festering and rotting. And that's his condemnation of the world, but what about us? Our hearts have a tendency to veer to the right, to think very highly of our own self-efforts, and that can numb us to the central importance of what God truly calls us to, a repentant heart. Our self-seeking cannot be God-pleasing. Instead, it is only when we are Christ-seeking that we can become God-pleasing. I'll say that again. Our self-seeking cannot be God-pleasing. Instead, it is only when we are Christ-seeking that we become God-pleasing. It's all about our motive. True obedience is mentioned in verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Don't miss it. It does not say those those who obey the law are righteous. Or those who obey the law have merited righteousness. It says those who obey the law will be declared declared righteous. It's a passive verb. It's something done to us. And this is what it means. If we are redeemed by Christ Jesus that we have, and we have truly repentant hearts, there will be fruit that comes from our lives that flows from the Holy Spirit. That fruit shows us. It shows us that we've made, been made alive in Christ. That obedience to the law shows that our hearts are alive. It does not make our hearts alive. That obedience to the law shows that we're united to Christ. It does not unite us to Christ. That obedience to the law shows that we are saved. It does not save us. It's a matter of motive. It's in the same way that the branch exhibits life by its vibrant leaves and its bearing fruit. So our heart exhibits life by bearing fruit. 
in obedience to Jesus. Salvation that is not about heart change isn't salvation at all. Outward obedience without inward change is hypocrisy. It's play acting. It's wearing a mask. But sometimes our motive gets all tangled up, even as believers, right? Sometimes we do the right thing because of social pressure. Sometimes we do the right thing because that's better for us with the people around us. It's hard to judge our own motive at times, even though we sit there and we examine our own hearts. It's hard to judge our motives. And if it's that hard to judge our own motives, how much harder is it to judge the motives of someone else? And that's Paul's point here. In reminding us, in reminding us how hard it is to judge our own motives, that it takes God to really tease apart that which is motivated by his glory versus our own self-effort, he reminds us, we are not fit to judge everyone else's motive. That's not our place. Instead, it's Jesus' place. Look at verse 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. And as he says, God judges the secrets. He means that Jesus sees our heart. He knows what's in a man. He looks not on the outside, but on the inside. And he knows what our motivation is. He sees the hidden and the inward. We just aren't equipped to tell the difference between the two. At the final judgment, I believe the question will be, did the things that you have wrought flow from a heart that's been changed by the Holy Spirit, or did they come from a heart that stubbornly refused to admit that it could not please God by self-effort? And he won't be asking because he's unaware. He'll be asking because he wants to know if we are aware. So in conclusion, why are we not qualified to judge the way that God judges? We overlook our complicity. Instead of saying, there but for the grace of God go I. We undervalue God's remedy as if grace was for the weak-willed. We overvalue our self-effort because at times it's, it's hard to understand what our true motivation is. And for all those reasons, we can only speak where God has spoken. We can only have righteous indignation of the things that he's given us to have righteous indignation. So what does that mean for us, though? It means that though we eye the judge's seat, that's not where we're called to sit in the courtroom of heaven. Where are we called to sit? We are called to sit on the witness stand. God has called each and every one of us to be witnesses. To point back to what Jesus has done. To point back what he's done in our lives. That he has saved us from the depths of our own depravity. That we, we in our hearts were just like the people in Romans 1. And at times we were just as moralistic as the people in Romans 2. But God rescued us from that. He opened our eyes by the Holy Spirit to see what is true about ourselves. And to see what is true about Christ. And we sit there on the witness stand giving our testimony. Not banging the gavel and saying, you're guilty. But pleading with those around us. Understand 
that in your guilt there is grace and there is a plea bargain on the table and you would be a fool to let it pass. May God equip us this morning by his spirit to be witnesses for him in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see a world around us that uh, wants to see themselves as okay in your sight. They've never done anything that has really been truly offensive. Help us as believers in Christ to be able to speak to their heart and, and help them understand that just standing there, just breathing, they are an offense to God because they are standing apart from Jesus Christ. But Lord, kill in us any sense, any seed, any growing plant, any root of self-righteousness. Remind us that we did not get here by our power, but your cross, that we do not stand before you as perfect because of our continued effort, but because of Christ's effort alone. Cause that joy for your salvation to well and up well up in us and, 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 and create a gospel obedience. But cause us not to sit in the judge's seat, but to let that be your job and to embrace our place as witnesses in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.